Croiso and welcome to the first ever Welsh Music Podcast. I'm James. And I'm Neil. How's it going, mate? I'm very good, thanks. You? Yeah, mate, I'm absolutely buzzing to get this podcast live. You know, it's, uh, it's something we've been wanting to do for a while. You know, we've, uh, we've been talking about projects uh, in, in the musical vein for, for a while and, and with, with little musical talent, um, it limited us a bit. So we think we've hit on something with this podcast, a celebration of Welsh music and culture um, that we think there's a gap in the market for and will probably resonate with people. If not, we're going to have a good time doing it. Yeah, and why wouldn't you uh, celebrate such a breadth of uh, talent, uh, past, present and future in uh, Welsh music and culture? Um, we're aiming to cover the entire spectrum from Anhraven to Zabrinsky. And tell us a bit about the structure of each episode, Jane. Yeah, so I think what we want to do is is to talk to people who we believe have uh, helped shape Welsh music and culture in some way, shape or form, which I guess is the why. Although I can't imagine many people questioning why we've got the guests that we've got lined up on because some top, top names. Um, and then what we're going to do is ask them about their career um, and then uh, ask them the very important question of their favourite Welsh album and uh, elevate that to the Welsh Music Hall of Fame. Never to be spoken of again, apart from on the Welsh Music Podcast Hall of Fame. Yeah, so uh, celebrated and adulated and adored in the archive on um, welshmusicpodcast.co.uk. And I should say at this point that we're also on all the social media, so we're at Welsh Music Pod on Twitter, on Facebook and Instagram as Welsh Music Podcast. And yeah, keep a close eye on all our socials uh, for up-to-the-minute news on guests and when we'll be uploading episodes. We've also got some great competitions for you as well. Yeah, so I think at least for the first few episodes, um, I don't think we can afford to uh, keep buying prizes every single episode because we're, we're hoping to be doing this for a long time. But yeah, first few at least, we're going to uh, try and sort of source some relevant prizes that the, the guests can sign and then, uh, yeah, let people know how they can, they can win them. And at the end of each episode, we'll be championing new music. So if you're an unsigned Welsh act, uh, make sure to either email us at welshmusicpodcast at gmail.com or keep an eye on our uh, Facebook and Twitter and uh, send us maybe a private message or an MP3. And uh, this week, we'll be featuring new music from the Montagues. What do you know about these? Well, when we put a call out, they were the first ones to get in touch. And um, yeah, great band. They seem to be um, very influenced by Catfish and the Bottlemen and the, and the Stereophonics, that sort of... Uh, heavy sort of rock pop and very kindly not only give us a the, an mp3 from their from their new ep calibrate to close the show but also our intro yeah great tune called devils uh, exactly what we were looking for just a really catchy sort of nice guitar riff and yeah it's track three i think on the new um ep which is available on all streams and services yeah so uh, yeah thanks to the boys and uh, i think they recently did a an in-store at uh, hmv in chester so big things to come Hope you enjoyed the episode. Feel free to send us some feedback of the, the positive kind and any suggestions for any guests. And we're also hoping to do some in-depth documentary style episodes about certain um, or specific uh, key moments in, in, in Welsh music. So, um, yeah, any ideas, please send them our way. Enjoy the episode. Thank you. David, welcome. Hello. What a pleasure. Hi, Dave. You all right? How are you both doing? Good, thanks, mate. Very Thank good, you thanks. so much yeah. for uh, for joining us on the the debut episode of the Welsh Music Podcast. Wow, honoured, mate. We're honoured. Yeah, yeah. If we, we had a list of uh, people we want to talk to. You were the top of the list. Yeah, but that's only because you work with me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe we start there. So, um, yeah, we all know each other from uh, from our time at Media Wales. Is it still still called that this week at least? This week, yeah. Yes, so, um, yes. or Wales Online. But you, Wales Online. You preceded Wales Online. You worked for IC Wales, the uh, the originator. I did. Yeah, um, back when the dinosaurs roamed the internet. Yeah, I was uh, a part of IC Wales. 
um, in the IC age. In the IC age. <laughs> yeah. And then I started off at the Echo a long, long, long time ago. Neil, you worked uh, in the Celtic newspapers. Yeah, I worked there for a bit. Cannon in Aberdeer and uh, Mercer, leader. yeah. Were you? Yeah. Mer- you in the regions? Yeah, yeah, where oh, I met my beloved yeah. in Murphy, yeah. Oh, amazing. Well, and I'm still there 10 years later. I moved to London with my bindle on my shoulder in 2010. <laughs> um, and so, Dick Whittington. And we've kept in touch ever since and yeah. obviously follow you on all the socials because uh, you are the leading Welsh music journalist, so that's why you were the first person on our list. I think the only Welsh music journalist actually operating in Wales, but I'll take anything I can get at this juncture, thank you. Talk us through your, your career as a music journalist, Dave. Wow. Um... Well, it, it goes back to childhood, really, mate. Um, growing up in Cardiff, growing up in East Cardiff on a, um, a council estate called Trowbridge Estate. It was siblings, really, got me into music. You know, having a brother and sister, they tend to be the sort of identifying force in your life. Um, or it's your parents, but sadly, my parents had no discernible music taste whatsoever. Uh, it was just a slew of Ella Fitzgerald and Frank Sinatra albums. Nothing they could pass on to me, and certainly nothing I could sell on eBay and make any money from. What, what would be the first sort of single and album you bought, Dave? Well, it was my sister, C, who got me into music, really, I have to say, because she loved uh, Roxy music. And I was the younger sibling, sort of spoiled kid, basically. And uh, she loved Brian Ferry. She was into Bay City Rollers first and had all the Tartan Army gear. And then she got into Roxy music in a massive way. And I used to sort of take the mech out of her um, and try and do a sort of sub uh, funny Brian Ferry impression just to wind her up. Can you do it now? I'm just a <laughs> jealous guy. <laughs> or something. Uh, and you can see what I wound her up. But um, I love, I then love Roxy music. I really, and they've stayed with me uh, forever. But it was actually her boyfriend. Uh, now a, a husband of many, many years, um, who was a mod, and he played me all mod cons by the jam. And I turned from being, the very first thing I was into was shawaddy waddy. You know, I had a bootlace tie and brothel creepers and all that. I absolutely adored shawaddy waddy. And then he played me the jam, all mod cons, and that was it. It was some kind of switch went off in my head you know I was 10 11 teetering on teenage years I just I just fell in love with the jam I was quite a you know I was into politics I guess you know very labor heartland Cardiff South and Pinar Jim Callahan who was the prime minister was the MP um you know we were on a we were on a cusp of Thatcher era and Weller was the sort of spokesperson for a generation and I was a little mini mod I had a parker um with a target on the back, probably said the jam or the who, I can't can't remember. I remember wearing it to junior school anyway. Were you the only mod in your in your junior school? I was the only mod in my junior school, funnily enough. And then in high school, I had a, a, a running feud with a... Um, the Rockers? A rocker, yeah, called Jobbo. You actually was secretly my friend until the point when he put petunia oil on my parker, so I chalked his leather... In revenge. What um, sort of age would the fanzine come about? I, you know what? I don't even know how it sort of happened. I think I was into the mod scene and I was massively into books. And um, my sister, again, was hugely into books and she'd want to play... <laughs> it's already coming to me now. Want to play libraries. And I, she was the librarian, of course. She had all the control. 
and I have to be the person going in and checking the books out and stuff like that. It was it was all Enid Blyton, as far as I can remember. So I think that's where it started. I just loved reading. I was really into football, and it was um, there was a football writer, um, an author called Michael Hardcastle, and I used to love his books. So I think those sort of music, football, reading, it all sort of aligned and fanzines, you know, punk obviously sort of big, um, you know, year zero for the fanzine, taking on a completely different guise. And that's what I did. It was some terribly amateurish, thrown together effort with Pritch Stick and Letra Set and... The best ones are. Oh, yeah, it was... I mean, they were awful. If you ever ever had the misfortune of seeing... um, it was called One Way World. It was named after a secret affair song, incredibly earnest as I was back then and political. Um, but I loved doing it. And, you know, we would, myself and my mate, Mac, would go to gigs and we would sell a fanzine. And, you know, we we go to gigs at a New Ocean Club in Cardiff and um, a Central Hotel atop of St. Mary Street. And this was sort of the early 80s, I guess. And, um, 83, 84, when it was still the sort of last remnants of a of a mod scene. And that was sort of the beginnings of my, my journalism, I guess. Yeah. You obviously wrote a book about Welsh music as well. I mean, the irony is that I actually wasn't around in Cardiff at the time it all kicked off. I'd sort of like to think that, you know, I put all the groundwork in and because following the, the fanzine, the one-way world, I did this fanzine called, and why anybody still hasn't adopted this as a musical movement, I don't know, but I did a fanzine called <laughs> Taff, Taff Beat, and uh, that's T-A-F-F Beat, and I still think that's genius, I don't care what anybody else says, um, and that was sort of a one-off, and it was really championing the local music scene in the late 80s, um, I think we had an A to Z of South Wales bands and we had interviews of all sorts of people. Um, Buzzcocks, Primal Scream, um, you know, stuff like that, basically. So that was me promoting and championing the music scene. And funnily enough, you know, we sat in Chapter Arts Centre tonight and this was a, a place of worship for me, essentially, when I was in my formative years because there was the Chapter Bar, which was... Um, you know, a citadel, I guess, for uh, local music, local music scene at the time. And it, it was really vibrant, but the problem was that, you know, Wales was always seen as the last bastion of anything discernibly cool when it comes to rock and roll. So what we saw later on when I when I moved to London was all these bands that were coming through. And that was what I wanted to get across in the book, ultimately. But there was an incredible scene in the city at the time both uh, English-speaking Welsh bands. And the Welsh language was huge back then. Uh, there were some incredible bands that I first encountered, I think it was going to Clangranog, the Earth Camp, because i come from a monoglot English-speaking family. I'd never encountered Welsh language before, Welsh language music, essentially. And then there was a programme called Video Now or on S4C, and that was an amazing revelatory moment. It was all these bands like Accurd, Crumblowers, U-Tant, uh, Club of Clyfog, uh, Flaps, you know, just a whole slew of amazing bands that were playing club, Club Eva Bark, and that was the first time I went there to see bands. 
So it was really healthy, really vibrant, but you just couldn't get an A&R man, anybody from a record company over the bridge. I, I almost think in a, in a sense, and that's, it's not detracting from the talent of the bands that came out in the 90s, but <laughs> I, I joke that I think that they'd exhausted every other music scene in Britain and thought, oh, we may as well give Wales a try. And, you know, thank God they did anyway, you know. That um, leads me nicely into the next point, actually. Um, did you do one of the first ever interviews in Wales with the Mannix? Yeah, I'd done the fanzines. I'd gone to London and I, I was a student at the London College of Printing. I did a one-year magazine course and... I'd been writing for a free newspaper in the city called the Cardiff Independent. I wrote a pop column and somewhat bizarrely did sports reports on American football teams that was pretty vibrant in the city at the time. Cardiff Tigers and the Cardiff Mets. So I kept in touch with um, a woman called Dawn, Dawn Beeb, B-E-B, never quite sure how to pronounce her name. We went on to do amazing things in magazines in uh, London and she just told me she was leaving and there was a vacancy at the South Wales Echo and it timed with me finishing my course. I was literally as lucky as that, got a job on the Echo. And then in the first year, I think it was, I think it was October, November, 1989, um, went to see The Alarm, uh, great Welsh band, uh, mean a lot to many people, of course, and meant a lot to me when I was growing up at St. David's Hall, and they just released uh, Change and Now It, and I think that's the first uh, Welsh language and English language concurrent release. So it, they were doing something pretty special at the time. Now their management, uh, or PR, sorry, was Hall or Nothing PR, who famously are still the Manic Street Preachers PR. And I met um, what would be the Manic's managers, Philip, and Martin Hall at St. David's Hall because they, as I say, they were doing a PR for the alarm. And they said, oh, we've, we've just taken on this band, this great band from Blackwood. Um, love you to talk to them. And I'll, I'll get them to come along to Thompson House, the South Wales Echo Western Mail building and have a chat. I didn't really think anything of it at the time. Um, I was impressed by the name when he told me they were called Manic Street Preachers, thought it was an amazing name. But I didn't expect to happen uh, what then occurred, which was uh, we'd arranged everything. They were going to come in. We're going to you know, go out and have a chat and take some pictures. And then we had a, a guy called Terry, who was the sort of security guard come concierge at the Thompson house, which was quite a grand sort of marble lined building Um next to the, what is now the Media Wales building. It, it, it's not there anymore, sadly, Thompson House. And I remember him ringing up and, and saying to me, Dave, um, four aliens have just landed in reception for you. And I was like, oh, Christ, what's, what, what the hell's this, you know? And I walked downstairs and, um, you know, I could see how they probably frightened this old fella anyway because they just had this brilliant look of slogans on their shirts and white denim. on their arms, white denim, um, Dunlop Green Flash, I think all four of them. Sean Moore had a lovely, he had a pudding a basin haircut um, out of the C86, you know, movement, very much primal scream and uh, an Italian 90 top on. Uh, Richie had a stenciled shirt on 
Um, and then James asked me for if I had a felt tip pen. So I said, yeah, yeah, sure. Not wondering what was what was going to happen. And then he he got a black black felt tip marker and started writing on his arm riots and various other slogans. And um, we had a young photographer called Andrew Davis who was a lovely, lovely bloke, but very sort of innocent, I guess. And he looked absolutely terrified at uh, these these four guys and it just carried on in the same vein basically brilliant but i just i just couldn't keep up with them we went to the burger joint we went and sat upstairs there was nobody else there and they talked at me for an hour you know quoting every philosopher and writer and painter and it was unlike anything i'd ever experienced before and since i have to say you know they were just but they, you know, burned so brilliantly and so brightly and so eloquent and so intelligent, and you know, stared you down. You know, all four of them with such an intensity, and you know, we know that what they wanted to say and how they wanted to come across and how they wanted to be presented. And Christ, you know, they couldn't fail. And you could see why journalists just just went for them to either love them or hate them. They were very polarizing sort of force what about you did you love them or hate them yeah I did because um, I sadly never got sent a copy of Suicide Alley the uh, <laughs> the debut single which uh, you know I'm sure would have been pride of place in my collection if, if I had but I did get a white label of New Art Riot the next released on Damaged Goods and you know coming from a sort of mod background so it you know I love the small faces and bands like that and the jam, of course, you know, so the Manics were sort of in that punk lineage, I guess. And New Art Riot EP is very raw and reconstructed and just very in your face. And, you know, I was 20 years old. I was say, I'm the same age as, as the Manics. So I, I loved it. I could see where they were coming from. Um, and they were sort of in thrall in a way to, you know, you've got to remember it was the time the Stone Roses had come out the year before. And so the music scene was... At, you know, a real high point again. So it was just so exciting to see all these bands coming out and a Welsh band. And that was the thing, you know, all I'd had pre that really for me was the alarm, was the Darling Birds from Newport, you know, who I loved uh, as much for their brilliantly sort of serrated, bouncy indie pop as, as I was in thrall to Andrea, the singer. And the Poostics from Swansea, you know, a brilliantly ironic sort of take on the whole sort of rock and roll mythology, who were one of Wales' greatest lost bands. In fact, the world's greatest lost band, one of them. Um, and of course, they, they enter the whole Welsh music story later on. Um, but so it was great to have the Mannix who were kicking over the statues, essentially, and causing some fuss. And, you know, this was before Cool Cymru, really. So they were the only band that was really doing that. So, uh, yeah, it was such an exciting moment. How did the uh, link with Catatonia come about then with the with the book? Um, really, really, really by chance. And I've been very lucky throughout my career. You know, I got, like I said, got my first job at, at the Echo by chance by keeping in touch with somebody. Um and then with the book, I always thought the story needed to be told about where all these bands came from, you know, because it's an interesting story that is unique to Wales, where these two languages coexist and then came together. 
um, and a Welsh language, a guest merging and, uh, with the English language brought about this movement in, in the 90s. Um, and not just in, you know, the bands that came out of the Welsh language scene, like Catatonia, obviously with members of Akudf, Mark Roberts and Paul Jones, but then you also had Owen Powell who'd been in uh, Crumb Blowers. Um, and then you had Gorky's, I Got a Monkey, and, um, you know, those sort of super furry animals, of course. Um, so I thought it'd be great to tell this story about where they came from, you know, and, and then uh, weave in a bit of history as well, go all the way back and look at the history of sort of Welsh rock and roll. And that was the original idea, was to talk about the history of Welsh music and bring it up to the present by talking about those bands that had just you know the book came out in a book is called Kerry's Catatonia and the Rise of Welsh Pop uh, published through Ebury Press through Random House and um, it, 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 it was by luck like I say it happened so the story is that I had a friend called uh, Tracy who was sharing a flat with a girl from Newport called Natalie Jerome and she had just started at Random House and she was looking for a, she was an editorial assistant at the time, gone, and now gone on to great things in publishing. Um, but in 2000, this was her first project, and they basically let her have a project. And I went round to her flat one night, and I just started talking to her about music. She loved music. She loved all the, the bands that had come out in Newport in the 90s, you know, when it was in New Seattle with, you know, 60 Foot Dolls, Novocaine, Dub War... Fly screen, all those sorts of bands, and we we had all this common, you know, common ground together that we shared. And I told her my idea; she loved the idea, and I guess it was a tale of sort of um, almost having to meet in the middle on it. So she took this idea away and talked to her bosses, and at the time, sort of Katsonia and Keris in particular were sort of like the big stars, I guess. And they wanted a book that talked more about Keris and her route to fame. But the compromise essentially was that I told her her tale through the prism of the story of the Welsh music scene and the Welsh language music scene of the uh, mid to late 80s and then English language bands as well. So... You know, I could talk about Poo Sticks and, and the Alarm and, and bands that had come through at the time and wove it all together, essentially. You know, I'd never written a book before, so it was hugely exciting. And then when, you know, the world's biggest book publisher offer you a deal, you sort of think, well, I'm slightly compromising my integrity, but I love the idea of doing it. So so that's what, that's what I did. And... Um, you know, and that's why 20 years later, I've never written another book. That was going to be my next question, actually. Have you ever thought of doing a follow-up in the last, sort of, covering the last 20 years of Welsh music? Yeah, I think, I mean, the book still needs to be written, you know, whether it be me or somebody else. I think that that story still needs to be told um, from a bilingual perspective, ultimately. Um, so, I, you know, I'd, 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 love to, I'd love to write that, essentially. But uh, we'll see. One um, last question I've got to ask you while you're here is, yeah. um, did you once try and teach David Bowie a um, bit of Welsh? <laughs> uh, yeah, unsuccessfully, unfortunately. 
Um, so that was that was in, within the first year of me starting at the Echo. Uh, Tin Machine were playing the Newport Centre, which was David Bowie's uh, band, and he wasn't doing any interviews. You know, we asked for an interview, and when the tickets went on sale, they were queuing uh, for a week, I think, outside the Newport Centre. Such was the demand to see Bowie. You know, you remember two years previously, he played to 70-odd thousand at the Arms Park. Two years later, he's going to appear in front of, what was Newport Centre capacity? Well, 1,000, is it? One, one five, I think, like something that, yeah, like that. Yeah. Two, two most, I, I guess. So there was, you know, there was a great fanfare around there. But we managed to get an interview with Reeves Gabrell because the whole thing was a democracy, essentially. And I, I went, you know, I did wonder whether I'd encounter Bowie and we were led back, I was led backstage and into the, the bowels of uh, the Newport Centre to do the interview with Reed Goodbrell, um, who was a really brilliant, lovely, animated guy from New York, you know, who, who collaborated with Bowie uh, for some time. And so I'm sat, uh, Gabrell's has got a wall behind him. I'm sat staring at Gabrell's in the wall and we're, we're finishing up the interview and then I get a tap on my shoulder and um, uh, a polite English voice says, uh, excuse me, I won't, I won't try to do the voice, <laughs> excuse me, and um, turned around and had Bowie standing there. So, you know, I sort of lost all semblance of cool and cachet and everything else and was just slightly terrified, to be honest with you, to be in the presence of a, of a rock god. And he just asked, did I speak Welsh? <laughs> I laughed uh, you know it was just nervous energy I didn't really know what to say so I said tipping bark which is a little bit you know and this was two years after passing my Welsh old levels so f thought that I was pretty proficient <laughs> in the Welsh language little did it prove to be uh, not the case so basically he wanted to say good evening Newport and um, um, my mind went blank it just went blank at that time. I, I, you know, uh, cold light of day, I know what it is, but I told him uh, Nostar. Um, so I've got a tape of him, which I've, I've, I've found after quite a few years, and you can hear him walk, thanking me and then walking off practicing saying Nostar. Because I missed the start of the show, I didn't know what he said, but I told my sister and a, a boyfriend who were at the gig and they'd said he'd spoken Welsh and they reckoned he'd said Nostar and it was um, only when Bowie died a couple of years ago that I wrote a piece about you know teaching him the wrong Welsh and a guy contacted me with um, the clip from the gig that I had never heard and he comes on stage and he says Nostar to Newport and it's a big roar you know and obviously most Welsh people, even if they don't speak Welsh, know what Nostar is. And they probably think, oh, Bowie, you wag, you know, having a laugh. So I think it all it all finished up nicely in the end anyway. Di Jones speaking Welsh in the <laughs> yeah. cast with. They would have been happy with anything friendly. Exactly. So, Amazing. So, yeah. so Dave, um, what we, what we want to do with this, uh, with this podcast is interview um, people who we believe has helped shape the, uh, the Welsh music yeah. and culture scene. Um, and then sort of ask them, you know, what their favourite Welsh album is, and elevate that to the to the Hall of Fame. No one else can no one else can talk about that album again. Brilliant. So Love you're it. the first one. So you got a wide catalogue of yeah. uh, of albums created yeah. uh, by Welsh artists in Wales. Um, yeah. What's your favourite album? 
Well, it was really difficult when you asked me, I have to say that. And I know that's a politician's answer, but it, it really was. I mean, you know, the, the alarm when I was growing up meant an awful lot to me. Um, but I dare say, I know they'd be really popular amongst people who you're going to interview. Um, and the Pooh Sticks, uh, an unheralded classic called The Great White Wonder, uh, 1990, I think it was, on RCA Records, which I absolutely adore as well. But I went with Six Foot Dolls, the big three, um, just because it appeals to me on many different fronts. Um, it's punk pop, it's mod, it's grunge, it's a myriad of styles, but it's just absolutely thrilling and enthralling. I mean, most of the tracks on the album clock in at the two, three minute mark, um, bar a couple. And it just, it's a hit and run in musical form, essentially. It's a riotous assembly and it's great fun as well. You know, and the the three of them, I mean, I remember interviewing Richard Parfit, the singer, and he said the 60 foot dolls couldn't have been any other members. Nobody else could have made that band. It was just that chemistry that brought them together and worked so perfectly. Um, you know, and Parfit was like the ringleader, essentially the older brother. And then you had these partners in crime, Mike Cole on bass, who was, you know, uh, carved out of a cliff face, a sort of rock and roll Adonis in a, in a striped top. And um, Chief Hellraiser, uh, the cherubic sort of... Uh, Carl uh, Bevan, who led uh, led the Merry Dance, essentially. Who joined the band after getting kicked out from his dad's evangelical church. Uh, <laughs> exactly. Percussion for How public perfect. drunkenness. That's like the most How rock and roll. Perfect. It is. Yeah. Pretty good, isn't it? So the, the album was released in 96, and it was kind of like just at the tipping point of Britpop. But yeah. it was almost like the perfect antidote to what Britpop had made music in the UK is sort of like yeah. harked back to, you know, that sneering snarl that, you know, Liam introduced with Supersonic. And where were you in 96? Yeah, I was living in London. Basically, my uh, girlfriend, who's now my wife, Claire, uh, we just met and she moved to London. And, um, you know, like a lovesick puppy, I followed her up like any good, any good bloke would do. And, you know, ironically, that's when it all kicked off. In 94, saw releases from, you know, Catatonia were releasing stuff. Um, I think Dolls was Happy Shopper, possibly 94, 95. Um, so it was all coming together. And I was well aware of that. I guess the great thing for me, I was in my 20s. I was in my mid, early mid-20s, I think. And, you know... There's a thing in journalism, they, you know, Cuffy, you know yourself, you've done it. You should always try London, I guess, you know. Yeah. As a, they call it BTL, don't they? They've been to London. It's like a yeah. badge of honour that people get given when they come back. And Yeah. yeah. You, I think it's I like going from, it's testing yourself, being that sort of small fish in a big, massive lake or, or ocean. Well, I was in love and, and still am, obviously, uh, with, with uh, Claire and... At the time, that was paramount to everything. So, but it helped that, you know, it was London as a music fan. Christ. I mean, I literally filled my gills for nine, well, it just short of 10 years I was there. And that's the first time when I saw the dolls and I saw 
Catatonia and a lot of those bands, you know, Super Fury Animals, uh, um, uh, University of Westminster, I think. I saw a double bill with the Dolls and Catatonia at the 100 Club. It was just a hugely exciting time for music, you know, forget Wales for a minute, just across the board. And I just threw myself, threw myself into it, uh, full tilt, and both of us absolutely loved London. I mean, for our sins, we were actually living in Croydon, which um, has many disadvantages and many disparaging remarks. But the one thing I always remind people is that there's a train on the hour, every hour, from Victoria Station that goes through East Croydon to Brighton. So if you're staying out to two, three o'clock in the morning, you've got a train to get on that's going to get you home. So I think I've fallen asleep on that train before and <laughs> oh, ended up yeah. in Victoria, but I think I'd been to Brighton. You've been to yeah. Brighton. Yeah, so yeah. I had to try and get home from, uh, from, from, from Victoria. But it's no bad way of falling. You either end up in Brighton or Victoria, yeah. and that's not a bad... I want to say fall asleep, key. I mean pass out. Well, of course. Of course, rock and roll credentials. You've exactly. drunk yourself into a, into a haze. and uh, so, so it was all kicking off. And, you know, I, I, I loved all the music at the time. I really embraced it. There was a shop in Croydon called H&R Cloak, which was Croydon's answer to spillers, essentially. And I was working for a company called EMAP, um, EMAP Business Communications at the time, who were just had an office in Croydon. So they were literally across the road. And I'd go in there, and they had a brilliant staff, as they always do, these shops, these independent shops. And they would just take my money off me every day. So I've got, you know, if you ever looked at my record collection my CDs and CD singles and albums from that period, from the mid to late 90s, are all from that shop. It was just a brilliantly vibrant time. And of course, you know, Wales was leading the charge. So I couldn't have, been, couldn't have been prouder. And it was about time. Christ, it was about time that it finally happened. Um, and the dolls were just a really sort of alluring presence for me. And I guess the... The ironic thing is, in a sense, is that I'd followed Richard Parfitt's career, the singer, um, from writing fanzines. He was in a band called The Messengers, who got who supported the Jam when he was eighteen, nineteen, I think, something ridiculous. The band that he was in with his brothers, and he tells this fantastic story about going up to Woking to try and find Paul Weller's house. And they go in the phone box and there's two Wellers and they ring both of them and one's um, ex-directory and they work out that that's probably Weller's house because they had the address in the phone book. Um, ask your parents or your grandparents about <laughs> phone books in telephone boxes. Um, and they turn up at Weller's house and his, his mum answers the door, invites them in, she gives them tea and toast. Uh, Parfit and his brothers give uh, her the demo tape and then two weeks later well his dad rings them and he's a big mean sort of box ex-boxer gruff voice cockney called John Weller and uh, he says hello Sir Parfit John Weller you've been you're the ones who've been bothering my missus and um, he gave them a number of dates on the Jam Seaside Tour, I think it was. Places like Bridlington and Scarborough, 1981. So, you know, what a start. Amazing start. And then he had a band called The Colours, who I loved. And I wrote about it in my fanzine. And they would play places like the New Ocean Club in uh, East Cardiff, which is now a fitness first or something. 
in sort of splot area and um and then controversially he jumped ship to um a mod pop band called the truth who had a number of sort of minor hits i guess in the uh early to mid 80s um i remember going up on a bus from newport to the colors played with the truth at the ilford palais all day which was a big mod gig back then and we were all you know former or still mods on this on this bus from newport I, yeah really exciting day out but apparently the deed was done at ilford palais all day that the truth poached richard parfit from the colors which was a big controversy back in the day um so he played with them and then he sort of went off radar um he was in a band called the blood brothers who were signed to jive records and they were sort of like stadium anthem gigs uh, uh songs that they would play and it didn't really happen for him for one reason or another and then he came back with the 60 of dolls and i was like oh christ this richard parfit you know and i'd always admired the guy always loved what he'd done always thought that he had that a mix of substance and style and always looked apart and was a great front man. So that informed my love of the dolls, essentially. So after he moved back to Newport, um, didn't he work in a pizza shop where Donna Matthews of Elastica fame worked, who was going out with Mike Cole and that's how the band set up? Yeah, Blood Brothers was signed to Jive Records and he'd had a major deal. And then he came back to Newport and he, he just wanted a new adventure, a band he could have fun with, you know, irrespective of whether a record contract was at stake. And he says that he was working delivering pizzas in a little restaurant called Nicolino's in Clarence Place. And Donna Matthews, um, who would soon lend her considerable rock and roll sass to Elastica. Uh, can you tell I'm actually reading from a piece I wrote? <laughs> um, was the waitress and her boyfriend who used to come and meet her at the end of the night was Mike Cole. Uh, he'd invariably come in drunk and, and they hit it off. Um, and Donna was apparently actually in the band at the beginning okay. and it was the three of them. But she had the brains to get out, move to London and answered an ad in a melody maker for Elastica. So that was it. It was Parfit and Cole and they were... And Mike Cole actually could have mentioned him earlier. He'd been a member of Darling Buds, but apparently he'd been kicked out after three weeks. So um, I think he possibly had a sizable reputation. Wasn't he also approached by Oasis in 96 to replace... No, 95 to replace Gwigsy, wasn't it? Yeah, he was. That's right. That's spot on. And um, he turned it, turned it down. And, you know, he knew it was just going to be a short-term gig. And, you know, you got to remember they were friends and... They'd famously supported Oasis at TJ's in 94, I think it was. Um, and, of course, you know, Oasis had their first cover shoot for a national music newspaper at um, King's Hotel, I think it was, in the Oasis bar. That's very fitting, yeah, yeah. Then, yeah. Iconic picture, that is. Rob, yeah. Rob Watkins took that, didn't he? Because I remember it was on his uh, business card. Uh, he had photo business cards for And rightly so yeah. as well, if you'd taken our shot. Yeah, give that to me. You know. Yeah, 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 yeah. So the pizza um, place still there? Pizza place needs a blue plaque. Yeah. Um, I've always thought that, you know, the fact that we're, we're talking about this 20 years later, 25 years later, actually. God, I feel old. Um... You know, we're the land of song, aren't we? Why aren't we celebrating this? Why aren't we 
marking these epochal moments in rock and roll history by in whatever form and i don't have all the answers yet and you know maybe blue plaques are quite a dull way of doing it but red plaque red plaques some rock and roll plaque let's have a yeah. dragon plaque dragon. well nicky wire said then. about um sound space where they yeah. the manics obviously recorded uh, the holy bible that you know that should have a yeah plaque or something outside but people just don't know do they that's the problem no. i mean i was thinking about soon festival uh this weekend gone you know that wonderful multi-venue celebration of uh, of music that uh, Jacob's Market was one of the venues and possibly little do a lot of the, you know, younger uh, music fans, should we say, would have any idea whatsoever that just adjacent to Jacob's Market was where Soundspace Studios was and you know, Manic Street Preachers recorded one of the greatest albums in rock and roll history, you know, the Holy Bible. And I just think it's a crying shame that there's no no notable, discernible history attached to that place. And it's something we need to remedy because, you know, the politicians in Cardiff Bay are really adept at um, brandishing the Landers song as some kind of, you know, marketing tourist badge when they need to. Um, you know, that is apparently the identifier of being Welsh. But we don't tend to celebrate it in any other way. And, you know, there's lots of... You know, Dublin's got a brilliant music museum or music centre there. And, you know, there's various places. Mut- Motown Museum, you know, you only have to look at Nashville or Austin... Texas places who do a brilliant job of celebrating their culture and it's something I think we're really poor at and we really need to remedy because I think people who visit Wales you know what are we known for that's why they come here so let's celebrate it yeah definitely get some uh, get a boost to the economy and yeah 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 of course what is your sort of memories of the Newport scene obviously Neil Strauss was it in spin said um, about being the new Seattle um you you must have gone to the t- you know TJ's Craft and did you see like Dubbor, Novocaine, uh, Flyscreen, those sort of bands back in the day? Yeah, I, just at the very beginning, uh, because obviously I moved to London then, so I'd see those bands up in London and I knew of the history. And obviously, uh, I mean, my favourite memory of TJ's is when I'd started on the Echo in eighty nine ninety, and Primal Scream were going to play. TJ's and I got an interview with Bobby Gillespie and it was um, the week after they had assaulted a national music paper press journalist um, and had some sort of real bad falling out and I was going to TJ's to interview Bobby Gillespie so I'm slightly you know I was 20 years old it was my first job Um, Diaco was producing this pop supplement called Pep pop entertainment people which was like some kind of sub smash hits clone uh, you know i look back on it now and what a brilliant first job it was to be honest with you free records free tickets to gigs it was an absolute dream but you know and chance to interview people like bobby gillespie but um yeah i went to tj's and you know john socolo and his lovely wife trilby um the legendary couple um, I remember going upstairs into their living room above TJ's and Trilby was cooking up uh, a chicken stew to feed the pan. And I was sat there in a comfy armchair in the quite, 
you know, homely surroundings of the uh, Socolo family, uh, eating chicken stew and interviewing Bobby Gillespie and have to say that he was an absolute kitten of a man. He was so lovely. And I think probably being in those sort of homely surroundings with two such lovely people as Troby and John Socolo helped matters yeah, greatly, yeah, you know, but... TJ's itself, what an incredible venue, you know, we, we've been blessed, but we need to educate people nowadays about these incredible places. With TJ's, obviously it's that um, urban legend about Kirk Cobain and Courtney Love, did that actually happen or is that just an urban legend? I mean, there's some recent footage of them actually at the gig that hasn't been seen for a while. They were shot by um, Therapy, the Northern Irish band. Brilliant band. Yeah, I think they were touring with Hole, and Hole were playing the gig. I could I could get this completely wrong, and apologies if I have, but um, I think Kirk Payne tried to get into the gig, and John Socola was like, who's this bloke trying to get in for nothing? Oh, man. And then a promoter had to sort of say, this is Kirk Cobain from Nevada, and uh, it was all, you know, it was What, what, what sort of time would this be? Would this been like when Bleach was out, or...? It can't have been um, when Nevermind was out, surely. 91, I think. Probably. Yeah, yeah it was then. It was just as... I'd gone to Reading Festival last year, that year. That was the first festival I'd, I'd been to, uh, first Reading Festival, and Nirvana were on the middle of the bill in the afternoon, and then the following year they headlined. So it happened really quickly for them. But, um, yeah. So um, local promoters, um, cheap, sweaty, fun... They yeah. were obviously well known for bringing um, like American punk and hardcore bands to to, to, to Wales um, yeah. and specifically Newport and TJ's. And that was kind of where um, 60 Foot Dolls got their break um, with a support slot with Thronebury. Um, so I think that's quite that's quite important from a, from a 60 Foot Dolls point of view that they, they had that sort of... Um, that transatlantic reference point in terms of their, in terms of the music, um, that sort of you know they had the mod with the jam and and Paul yeah. Weller, but also you know Dinosaur Junior and and Pavement, those sort of bands yeah. that that's where they took their inspiration from. Well, I think Cheap Sweaty Fun was so hugely influential at the time for bringing this diverse array of American punk and hardcore bands to to TJ's. You know, I mean, I think. Green Day played one of their first UK dates at TJ's and um, lodged over at um, one of the uh, beddies from the Cowboy Killers. Yes, I hear this. Which is a, 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 a funny, a funny story about um, they woke up and he couldn't remember that he agreed to allow them to lodge at his house. And he thought that these blokes had broken into his house. So he confronted them uh, with a, uh, was it a sword it or was, something uh, like that? It was a machete in his underpants. A machete in yeah. his underpants. And they were absolutely terrified. But, but they still mentioned it to him years and years later. Yeah, yeah. And they're still friends years and years later about it, which is hilarious. And, and he's sort of typically Newport, if you like. After the Echo, I, I was um, approached to become a co-editor of a magazine called Venue, and uh, which had run for years in Bristol, and only recently, uh, just a couple of years ago, stopped being published in Bristol. 
and they launched a Welsh version of it. So I went and worked for them, and I used to talk to Simon from Cheap Sweaty Fun every week, and he, you know, send a listings in, and we'd have a conversation, and it, it was a it was a place and time of its own. It was unique in a sense because you had this person with the 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 vision and and the confidence, I guess, to know that he could put these gigs on and they would be really well attended and everybody would turn up and it would just be off the scale, these sorts of shows. And, you know, Newport carved out its own particular niche at that time that was, despite coming to prominence at the time of Cool Cymru, was completely apart from it, you know, um, whether you want to call it a new Seattle or whatever, because, of course, the music was very grassroots and very grunge, I guess, you know, and, and Novocaine, Flyscreen, Rollerco, Disco, um, Five Darrens. Dolls, yeah, all those bands came out at the time and was a scene all of its own, you know, was seen within a scene, if you like. Uh, just incredibly vibrant time from music for Wales that could only have happened because of those... You know, the mix of uh, Simon from Rockaway and Cheap Sweaty Fun and TJ's ignited that scene, I guess. There was, um, there's a theory I've had sort of floating around in my head that I wanted to discuss for you about debut albums. And I always tend to think, I'm not saying that a band's at their best, obviously, when they release a debut album, but they seem to be at the most exciting. You can make this point for Manics of Generation Terrace, the Phonics we would get around, Fuzzy Logic with the Super Furries, but even like across the board, like Stone Roses, definitely maybe with Oasis. Yeah. What do you think of that with, in, in this case, with the Dolls? Well, I think you see a band in its possibly its rawest, purest form. You know, you see them at their most naive, their most innocent, and possibly their most exciting when they're completely in fraud with the idea of rock and roll, that they've not been tainted in any way by record companies or asked to compromise. This is just, you know, pure-blown rock and roll, in the case of the Six Foot Dolls, anyway. And, you know, that debut has its faults in a sense that um, it is loose-limbed, um, it looks like it could fall apart at any point. It's built in the image of the 60 foot dolls. You know, uh, Richard Parfit says that, um, they were always two steps away from splitting up and falling apart. And I think that's almost, uh, exemplified in the music that, like I said earlier, it's just a, a riotous assembly of incendiary, rock and roll um, that plays completely to the real hedonistic aesthetic of rock and roll. White, just white knuckle ride, as they say, yeah, the song. Yeah, a white knuckle ride, exactly. And that's what their gigs were, you know. That's why you loved them. That's why you wanted to see them. Because I bet you every single gig was completely different. Your two nights would never be the same with the 60-foot dolls. And uh, I remember putting a post up on Facebook when they re-released um, The Big Three in a, an extended format uh, three or four years ago. And it was such a lovely outpouring of love for them that they're so well-remembered and so fondly thought of that I actually think if any, you know, if they did reform in what you know whatever shape that may, may take, you know, these gigs would be sold out because people just oh, yeah, adore absolutely. them and love them and they just take you back to a time and a place in your life when 
you were the same age as them and you loved rock and roll and you were enthralled to rock and roll and it meant so much to you that you go to gigs every week um, and you would love, love, love the music. When you talk about sort of nostalgia and uh, revisiting music, does it hold up for you? Yeah, in a way. I mean, I've always been somebody, you know, I'm, I'm now uh, 51 and, you know, I don't even like saying that, but um, there's a massive heritage circuit, isn't there, at the minute where, <clears throat> you know, pretty much most of your Britpop bands uh, are back in some form or another or playing a, a Butlins holiday camp or whatever you like and, you know, 64 Dolls have never done that. They were of their time. They burned briefly but brightly for a period and people were completely uh, in thrall of them. But I don't think there's anything essentially wrong with that, but I've always been somebody who's loved new music as well. I think a lot of people of my age can probably get stuck in that whole nostalgia trip. Uh, I love the jam, but I've seen From the Jam once, twice, Not maybe. quite the same, is it? Not quite the same, and maybe I'm a rarity, that I'm a bloke of a certain vintage who loves music but still wants to investigate, still wants to uncover new music and still have that thrill of discovering something that makes me think, wow, this is sensational. Um, I don't think there's anything wrong with that because music's music. If you love it, that's not a bad thing in whatever form it takes. I think when you mentioned that, you know, no two sixty foot dolls gigs were the same, it kind of reminded me a little bit about um, the Libertines. They're yeah. my big band. They're the, the band that I was the same age as when they were releasing up the bracket. Um, yeah. And they sort of technically shone brightly and, and faded away very quickly. But then, yeah. you know, we've recently come back together. We're recording this on the day that Pretty Vicious have split up. Yeah. And it's kind of hard not to compare that big sort of shining light uh, that faded very quickly in terms of, you know, one album and, 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 and yeah. goodbye. Obviously there's, you know, reasons behind that, that maybe, uh, yeah. uh, you know, I've have parallels with, with the 60 for dolls or is, is that a lazy comparison? Um, it's slightly different in this sense that, um, you know, these are kids from Merthyr who were, you know, Elliot, the drummer, was 15 years old when they were signed to Virgin EMI after a bidding war, um, after playing two gigs at the Red House in Merthyr in December 2014, I think. I remember um, um, they supported the Mannix on the Holy Bible gig in the castle, and I think yeah. either that day or the day after, he took his GCSE music yeah, exam. On the day, yeah, on yeah, the yeah. morning of the gig at the Holy Bible Incredible. tour in 2015. So it was slightly different in that sense, but I think there was still, you can make parallels in the, the music and, you know, I, and I can't say this as gospel, but I'm sure there was some kind of hedonism uh, attached to both bands that was an overriding factor, I'd say. But I mean, you know, the dolls in one respect were, you know, Richard himself, Richard Parfit, the front man was was obviously older than Carl and Mike. And he always says that, you know, he certainly didn't drink as much as they did. And he was almost like the older brother to the two of them. And we're pretty vicious. I think it was the age old tale of the rock and roll uh, machine uh, chewing you up and spitting you out. And, uh, you know, there was a series of factors. I think obviously, you know, um, it was reported that the dolls came to an end. Mike had his issues, the bass player, and Brad, 
gone on a record with me a couple of months ago about the, the you know the issues that he's faced so but I think the one thing I have to say is you know thank God the dolls released the big three which still stands the test of time and I know they released almost as an after for Joya Magica the second album but they'd already split up at that point and I'm just glad the Pretty Vicious managed to release Beauty of Youth because it's such a stunning album and there's a load of songs on there that are equally as great but through contractual obligations shall we say uh, weren't seen on the album but you know, Christ, if you're going to burn briefly and you're going to burn brightly, then there can be two, you know, no greater albums than Beauty of Youth and The Big Three. There was um, several producers bandied around for producing The Big Three, but um, yeah. eventually, uh, I guess Hugh Williams, the, the former Poostix frontman who managed the band, yeah. was kind of in charge of uh, keeping them in order and uh, chose um, Al Clay. The, yeah. the, the Pixies producer, who's known as being a bit of a... An authoritarian Sergeant figure. Major type. Sergeant, Sergeant Major, Major type, shall we say. Yeah, so did that affect the the sound or was it more getting them to commit and, and, and produce the album? I think, you know, what you've got really is a, a bunch of unruly school kids in a way. You know, they were mischievous, they were funny... They, they, you know, uh, Richard Parfit says himself, they were just close to splitting up most of the time and who knew when it was going to end. So they needed somebody, a strict authoritarian figure to keep them in check. And Al Clay, I guess, was that sort of person. You know, he's brought in specifically for the job after bigger names, uh, um, I think it was Bernard Butler and Pete Townsend had been bandied about. But he he was great. He was perfect for them in a way. And, you know, what resulted from those sessions at Rockfield in Monmouth was what you got was the big three. And probably if it was from anybody else, it wouldn't have happened. You know, he was, um, I think it was a strict midday to 8 p.m. curfew. Um, apparently it was the only way the record company could get, get them to record the album. Um and he was the right guy for them. The wrong guy would have been somebody who turned up with a bottle of Jack Daniels who wanted to join the band. You know, and, and apparently he, Al was a complete opposite. He was like a military sergeant major figure. Um, he told them they weren't leaving the studio. He'd locked the door. You know, it was like boot camp to them. Um, and he was quite a regimented figure in himself. I remember interviewing Richard Parfit, he said that he laid out his clothes, Al uh, Cladis's, in his room, 10 shirts, 10 pairs of trousers, four pairs of shoes, and all of it was exactly the same. Shirts were all white, shirt, shoes were brogues, he looked exactly the same every day. Um, you know, I don't know if there's some kind of sort of rampant OCD at play there, um, but more amusingly was the fact that he actually had an air rifle that he'd fire at them when they were playing and apparently it was his way of keeping them on their toes which uh, yeah I think is fantastic so similar in or not too dissimilar from Oasis when uh, they had to uh, decamp to sawmills in, in Cornwall yeah. and the only way of accessing it or more importantly the only way of leaving the studios was by a, a little boat um, <laughs> and, 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 and t- time so yeah how do we confine this uh, this band yeah, exactly. And I mean, you know, there's similarities between the the two the two groups, and I think that's just a 
the rampant pursuit of a hedonistic agenda and it's young blokes. I mean, you're giving the world on a plane. Yeah, plate. I mean, and you're just going to indulge yourself, aren't you? Who, who, who wouldn't? wouldn't? I mean, to- talking of Oasis, I mean, I've been listening to the reissue a lot uh, recently, and um, with obviously with early Oasis, particularly the first two or three albums, some of the best stuff is hidden away in the B sides. Now that second disc is an absolute treasure trove. Um, the ones that stuck out stuck out for me really is. Um, such a brilliant instrumental, Mindy Run, and also what a brilliant Beatles cover as well. Yeah, I I, I got to say that the two things. I mean, I loved Oasis. I've got to declare that from the start. And yeah. I know that you're preaching maybe, to the converted, but yeah, well, yeah, well, well that's, uh, you know, and I know it's not hugely fashionable anymore to say that you were, but I remember seeing him at Smith Palais. Well, I don't know. I mean, I've read some places that, you know, anyway, that's a debate for another time. That's a debate for another time. First time I ever saw them, Hammersmith Palais, Christmas 94, with my my Irish mate JJ from Dublin, and they were phenomenal. And that was it. And I I just travelled around watching them after that. Did you go to Nebworth? I went to Nebworth, I went to Loch Lomond, I went to Bournemouth, I went to Newport Centre, I went to Brixton Academy, I I went to Sheffield Arena, I mean, me and yeah. Jamie were that year or two too young, weren't we? I think yeah. you were too young, unfortunately. To, and it was just, you know, the thing is, you don't know what you're living through. Only in retrospect, you realise that these were the days of your lives, and it was, you know, incredible. Um, but the B sides, the B sides were phenomenal. I mean, two of my favourite. Oasis B-sides are Rocking Chair and Step Out, which was ripped off Stevie Wonder mercilessly. Yeah. But with the Dolls as well, I had an import album um, of theirs that had things like the uh, White Knuckle Ride and Mangy Run um, on it. But everybody's got something to hide, except for me and my monkey, in brackets, is probably one of the best Beatle covers oh, that you brilliant. will ever hear. And I think it... I think it's a live version. I'm not sure. It is a live but version, it, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I don't it, know where, but um, does it say on the sleeve notes or anything? Or? Not certain, but it, it just, it captures them in their absolute finest. You know, a band that could just fall to pieces in front of your very eyes or could transport you to the heights of uh, enjoyment and excitement and a real thrill ride. You know, this is uh, joyous music at a highest order if you if you love that adrenaline rush you know you want to be down the front when you're old enough to be able to be down the front um that's what it reminds me of so what's um two quick questions what's your favorite tune on the album and secondly what's the best entry point if it differs to potential new listeners to the band um that's a tricky one um happy shopper was the first thing i ever heard and I, I just sort of loved the the kitchen sink aesthetic of that as a story, but I'd, I'd probably have to say stay, only because it's got a brilliant intro riff, and um, I love, I love the guitar, and then I love um, the tumbling drums, the drum roll from Carl Bevan that introduces the song with an absolute kick. I just remember playing it to death. Um, I put it on compilation albums, I put it on tapes, cassettes. 
if I was ever, because I was known in work as <coughs> the music bloke, um, I'd always do tapes for people. That's, that's aging me. And I'd always have stay by the 60 foot dolls on there. But I, I, you know, I love new loafers, talk to me, hair, happy shopper. Uh, the one, number one pure alcohol is them. You know, that's, that, that's a song. You know, that's a that's, that's, that's that's biography. Yeah, that, that if you one, like. uh, it's got the most grungy sort of sound, I think. Um, number one pure alcohol. Yeah, and Pig Valentine as well. You know, it's, I'd say they possibly could have lost a track or two if you wanted it in its leanest form. But, you know, nevertheless, uh, you've got to seek out those B-sides. You've got to seek out uh, White Knuckle Ride, Mainly Run, um, and everybody's got something to hide except for me and my monkey. Um, they also did a, a brilliant version of uh, Afterglow by The Small Faces, and they contributed a song, I think it was Afterglow, to... Yeah, it was um, Afterglow, yeah. Yeah, to uh, Small Faces' tribute album, and I can remember going to the launch of this album at the Powerhouse in London. I can't, they were there, and I can't remember if they were playing or not. Um, there were bands like <laughs> Ocean Colour Scene, Northern Uproar, Weller, Buzzcocks were on this album, and they played a launch gig. And I remember that um, I've got a picture of Richard Parfit and Mike Cole with my girlfriend, now my wife, and her let me know uh, when we got home that uh, Mike Cole had apparently tried it on with her. Jeez. And I have to say that um, I was so in love with Mike Cole myself, I would have gladly given my permission, frankly. My God, Dave. What an Adonis of a man he was. So um, uh, have, you, have you seen him or spoken to him over the years? Or? No, I, I've, I've not actually since. So, um, mate, crack on, I would have said. I think there's a, uh, I think Gordon Smart talks about, uh, he wants to do a book about sort of, uh, I don't know, some urinal escapades or toilet escapades. And I remember he asked Kelly Jones about that. And Kelly Jones had a similar story about Stephen Tyler. Um, and his uh, and and his girlfriend. So he yeah. came into the toilet, saw Stephen Tyler at the urinal, and uh, said, "You know, well, thanks for letting us support you, or whatever the conversation was." Walked out. Kelly Jones's girlfriend at the time was uh, standing outside, and uh, and she looked a little bit like taken aback. He said, "What happened?" And he said, "Oh, uh, Stephen Tyler just had his tongue down my throat." Sort of. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> So, uh, Dave, mate, you should uh, get in contact with Gordon Smart and give him... Give him yeah, so, being a bit of a stato, I, I know yeah. you're going to get answered this question, but I bet you can't get the bonus points. Oh, go on. So, what infamous band did the 60-foot doll support of Finsbury Park in 96? Well, that would be the Sex Pistols, Neil, wouldn't it? It would. But I oh, bet you on. can't get this. Go on. And I only read this recently. Go on. Who introduced the Sex Pistols onto the stage that night? Oh, that's a tough question. I think you'll ever get it. Is it something? Is it somebody incredibly it, random? It's random and it's related to the time. Think of that summer, 96. 96. Was, was it Alan Shearer? In that ballpark. Stuart Pearce. Stuart Pearce, yeah. Ah, but right, I, I, I can understand that punky element of yes, getting Stuart Pearce involved. It, he? Yeah. But he yeah. also dragged along the most inappropriate England teammate oh, in their God. full England tracksuits. Not a waistcoat. Not a waistcoat. Oh, not Phil Neville. No, no, no. no. Gareth Southgate. Gareth The Gareth biggest Southgate. square no on the way. planet. 
introduced the Sex Pistols. Really? What I had no idea. Stuart Pearce makes sense all day long. Gareth Southgate his, somehow His stock not. was high at that point, wasn't he, after that missed penalty, I suppose, wasn't it? Exactly, yeah. yeah. Mind you, you know, you can earn a few quid from a pizza advert, <laughs> can't you? So that was awful. Fair play to him. Yeah, Jesus. And uh, yeah, England, keep missing penalties. We love it in Wales. <laughs> Carry on. Now, now, English listeners will have thought, yeah. I can't imagine there's going to be many, to no. be fair. So, Dave, thank you very much, mate, for your My time. Pleasure. And, uh, yeah, and letting us revisit the classic uh, 60 Foot Dolls album, uh, The Big Three. Um, thank you. Yeah. I've had a ball. Thank you. Um, one last thing. Um, we obviously introduce a new band each week um, at the end of the podcast. Um, we're going to play a track by a band called The Montagues. Do you know much about these guys? Um, I don't, but I know that they're making waves in North Wales, Young, uh, new young band from uh, Rill, I think, around that area. Apologies, boys, if I've got the wrong place. But um, I've investigated, and I really love what I hear. So hopefully we'll hear a lot more from them. Yeah, new EP, Calibrate, came out in August 2019, and this is the opening track, You Got It All. 